Thank you, Mark. Good morning, everybody. Good morning. So grateful to have Brian and our team lead us in worship <clears throat> this morning. I'm a fill-in piano player. I, I, I play a few things, and, and piano is one of them that I play not as good as other things. And uh, the reason I'm on piano this morning is uh, many of you might know already, Dan Golden, who often plays piano with us, he's served with me for over 10 years. And he and his wife Nancy are just awesome members of our church, and they serve the Lord in so many ways. Dan had a moderate stroke on Friday. And so, if you'd be praying for the Goldmans and for their family, uh, I know they would appreciate it. I, I got a, a text from Dan this morning, and he said, hope you guys have a great rehearsal in worship. I wish I could be there, but other plans for me. He says, my left arm strength is slowly improving, and I'm sitting up better this a.m. God is good all the time. And I love the encouragement that that brings. Even, even someone who's experiencing great trial in life says God is good, even in this. So, there's your sermon for the day. <laughs> A couple of quick things before we dive into Philippians chapter 2. Uh, we have some new kids' uh, sermon notes. They look like this. They're green half sheet. Kids, you, must, you may have gotten them as you walked in. They have things on here like a space for your name, your age, your favorite candy so we get to know you better, uh, favorite song that we sang today was, and then on, on one side it's got listen to the sermon, make a mark for each time you hear, and then it's got a bunch of words. So there's words like Bible, God, Gospel, Love, and then there's some spaces, and two words I want you to write in this morning, kids, are the word work, okay, the word work, and the word salvation. So every time I say the word work, salvation, God, gospel, Bible, love, make a little mark next to it. And I'd love to see if your numbers match up with mine. And if they do, uh, you might receive something back through your first file, okay? If you don't have a first file, we'd love to get you one. Uh, just fill out on the welcome sheet that you like the first file. On the back side, another way, kids, that you can engage with the teaching this morning is you can write down something that you learned today, something that God is teaching you. Or you can write, or sorry, not write, you can draw a picture about what you learned. If you like to draw, that gives you that opportunity. You may give these to me, or you can put them in our joy boxes at the end of, this, of our worship this morning, and we will get them back to you uh, later this week, so you can have them for your thing. But we'd love to get to know you kiddos that way. Um, and then, uh, two more things. Uh, if you need a Bible, there are Bibles at the back. Um, if you don't have a Bible, We'd love to give you one so that you can be in the Word this week, as Mark said, we'll be in Colossians with our, with our fall by read, Bible reading plan. And then lastly, uh, many of us watched and read a lot of the shocking, horrific events of this last week in Las Vegas. And so I want to just encourage us, as we see tragedy like this occur, it reminds us again that mankind is hopelessly lost without God, and that we are in desperate need of Jesus to be our salvation, to be our peace, to be our rescuer. And so uh, brokenness and self-centeredness are, are just rampant in the hearts of, of mankind, and people need the gospel. So could, could I encourage us in two ways? Number one, be gospel people. Be people who live and breathe the good news of Christ in your life. And then secondly, be prayerful, all right? Some of us may have connection to people out there, but all of us can go before God in prayer and ask for peace and for comfort, for, um, for God's strength to be with those who are, who are hurting and who are affected.
Let's, let's, let's pray. We'll dive into Philippians chapter 2. Oh Lord, our God, we sing your praise now and forevermore. Great are you. Great are your works. Great are your deeds. And God, if we were to come before you and not be awed by who you are, we would make you much smaller in our minds than you actually are. God, help us to know, help us to know before whom we stand this morning. The great God of all things, the great God of the universe, and yet the God who has made each one of us in your image to be image bearers of you on earth. I ask God that your Holy Spirit would teach us and lead us into all truth today. We trust you, God, to imprint your word on our hearts as we study it and to help us walk in obedience to it. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. All right, Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. We started this a few weeks ago. We're going to pick up in verse 12. Starts with you get the page of Philippians chapter two, starting in verse twelve. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to work in order for His good pleasure. Our passage begins, and, and it begins the next section, which we'll continue studying next week, but it begins with this word, therefore. Whenever you see a word, therefore, you have to understand what is it hinging together. And it's hinging something that came before was something that Paul is about to command. We talked about that a few weeks ago. Um, therefore is there to point us back to what we studied when I was teaching uh, earlier last month. Verse uh, 27 of chapter 1. Where Paul says, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. Or you could render it, citizenize yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel. The word there in the Greek means to, to be a citizen of. And Paul is writing to specific people in a specific time and specific place. And that's the people of Philippi. And citizenship was so incredibly important in Philippi. And here's why. Philippi was a Roman colony. This is just review for those of you who weren't here. Philippi is a Roman colony um, in the area of Greece. So, Chad, if you put that, that map up for us, we can see that there is a little bit of distance between Philippi and Rome. I, I actually uh, Googled it this week because I was curious. It takes you about 20 hours to drive from Philippi over to Rome. And in 20 hours, if you go up over that sea and you come back down, it's like 21 hours. It's like 1,900 kilometers. If you go kind of straight across and then you take a ferry across the water, it's 20 hours. If you hop on a plane, it takes four hours to fly from Philippi to Rome. So you get the idea that Philippi and Rome are like nowhere near each other. And yet, Philippi was essentially a small Roman colony. They lived as though they were Romans. They, they were obedient to Caesar, who is in this area just the dominant force. 
And yet there was a small group of believers in this city of Philippi who instead of saying Caesar is Lord, said Jesus is Lord. And it's to them Paul is writing. They were proud of their citizenship in Philippi because citizenship gave them protection, it gave them identity, and it gave them responsibility within their community. And Paul writes to them in the latter part of chapter 1 into chapter 2, and he urges them to seek peace or to seek unity through humility. He had heard that there were some tensions between people in Philippi, and he wanted to instruct them in how to walk forward as one people of God. And so he writes to them, uh, calling after the relational conflict that was present, present, and he says, be unified, serve one another. He says, your attitude should be the same as that of Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. He, he uses Jesus as an example of how they are to serve one another. And um, these actions are characterized by Christ's obedience. And so he, he wants them to adopt a new way of life. He wants them to continue in this new way of life. And so he says, therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence. Notice Paul says to them, dear friends, he knows these people. He loves these people. And he could have used his apostolic authority to command them. And yet he appeals to them as his beloved, as his dear friends. You can kind of see a little bit of Paul's heart for these people. And because he has a heart for them and because he knows them, he, get, he has special relational credibility to speak to their struggles. And his concern um, is that they embody the gospel as one people with one mind for the sake of Christ. Now, the idea of obedience is, is evident here. As you have always obeyed, so now not only is in my presence, but now much more in my absence. The idea of obedience here ties back thematically to Christ's obedience. And so he's recognizing that there's some obedience, but he wants them to continue in that obedience. And he's actually commending them for obedience that happens when he is there and when he is not. So uh, a quick question for you. Um, how do you act when no one is around? That is, no one in authority is around. Kids, have you ever been in the classroom where the teacher has left the room just for a moment? Did it ever get kind of crazy? Maybe? Uh, I hear yes. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, obedience, Paul says, is when you follow what the person in authority wants you to do even when they are not there. That's pretty strong. That, that, that shows really a heart behind obedience. When I was a kid, um, we would have family work projects from time to time, and I, I hated family work projects. Uh, one of the projects was a hot summer day, I don't remember what day of the week it was, but we ended up outside probably seeding grass. I, all of my memories come back to planting grass you know, all over our, my parents' six acres. And, um, and we were outside working, 
And I, and I remember going into the house to grab a drink of water, and I took a little detour. Um, I grabbed a cup of water with some ice, and I took a detour to the, the edge of my parents' bed in front of the television, and about 20 minutes later, <laughs> the water took a long time to drink, apparently. About 20 minutes later, my dad walks in. And you can maybe imagine where this is going. He comes in, and my dad, man, a few words generally, comes in, and he goes, so what you doing? Like, I just drinking my water. He's like, come on, let's go. And I got, I got roped and wrangled back outside. It was easy to sit down and watch TV and not do what my parents wanted me to do when my dad wasn't in the room. When my dad came back in the room, guess what I did? I went, yeah, and that's a good lesson for us all. When someone's in the room, you should obey. But obedience, Paul says, is characterized even more deeply by how we obey when the person who has authority over us is not there. Now the word obey in this passage, let's look at that for a minute. Um, and think about what characterizes your obedience. The word for obey is the word upakuo. Can you say that? Upakuo. It's a fun word. Say it again. Upakuo. This is your Greek uh, 101. And it comes from the word akuo which means to hear, to listen. And upakuo, when it's in, in the compound here, it means to follow instructions, to obey, to follow, or to be subject to. And, and it's the word in the Greek that corresponds to the Hebrew word for shema, or for listen, for obey. So you might, you might be familiar with, hear, O Israel, shema Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul and strength. It's the word that, that goes between the two testaments in the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible. And it means to follow instructions, to obey, follow, be subject to. Carries the idea with it, hearing, listening, obeying. And it's often used to describe the type of hearing of God's teaching. We find in, for example, uh, Hebrews chapter 5 that leads to eternal life. And so it's hearing the word of the Lord having faithful obedience and experiencing life in Christ, eternal life in Christ. It's the word, for example, used in Hebrews chapter 11, where it says, by faith, Abraham, upakuo, he obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. It's a strong word, and, and it's characterized by true obedience, not, not, um, not lip service. Sometimes in our life, when it comes to obedience, we obey out of coercion, or maybe we obey out of compulsion. Sometimes you might obey out of duty or guilt. I know because I've done all of these. You know, sometimes you might obey hoping for a reward. True obedience, Paul is wanting to say, is when you hear the word of the Lord and out of love, out of loving the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, you follow in his ways. You hear and you do. That's the nature of Upokuo. True obedience that is rooted in love. And so the Philippians, the Philippians, um, demonstrated this kind of hearing. They demonstrated this kind of faith in their walk with God. And, and that walk was characterized by love 
and obedience to hearing God's word. And so um, Paul says that as you've always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, he moves to another phrase. He says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Now, Paul is going to address a prominent theme of this letter. And that's the idea of work. And the word work here is a word that means to produce, to cease, or sorry, to produce, to cause, to function, or to work. This is a present imperative of Paul to the Philippians. He's saying, work, cause to function, produce out your own fear with fear, out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now, to understand the idea behind work, we have to talk about briefly what is salvation in its holistic biblical sense. Salvation, um, one theologian said, is God's redemptive initiative. God's redemptive initiative. And I like that as a start for the definition of salvation. Biblically speaking, salvation includes not just coming to faith in Jesus, being saved is the phrase that you might hear often. It includes not only that act of being justified before God, but it also includes things like sanctification, growing in holiness, and ultimate glorification. In other words, salvation is God's redemptive work in its totality. That's what Paul has in mind here. He says, continue to work out your salvation in its totality with fear and trembling. Now, the word here um, that is, uh, that, the word here that is work, produce, to cause, to function, to work, William Barclay says, always has the idea of bringing to completion. It's as if Paul says, he says, don't stop halfway. Go on until the work of salvation is fully achieved in you. And he says this. He says, no Christian should be satisfied with anything less than the total benefits of the gospel. Let me ask you a question. Where in your life is the total benefits of the gospel evident and not evident? We look forward to one day being with the Lord, being free from sin, not struggling with our flesh anymore, and experiencing the total benefits of the totality of God's salvation. And yet until then, Paul says, don't be satisfied with anything less than the total benefits of the gospel. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Uh, people have responsibility for God. They don't have responsibility for their salvation, but they have responsibility to bear fruit as we, as we depend upon God's power. And I love what Pastor Alistair Begg says. He makes the point, we are not working in our salvation. We are not working up our salvation. And we are not working for our salvation. That should hopefully clarify some things for you. He says we are working out our salvation. So what does working out our salvation practically mean? Practically, it means, much like the word obedience, to hear God's word 
and to turn and walk in faithfulness. It means, for example, um, that when you are having a fight or you're angry with someone, you don't seek revenge, but instead you seek to live at peace with all people as far as it depends upon you. Romans chapter 12, for example. Another example, it, it means that if someone has sinned against, lied to, or slandered against you, that God calls us to forgive as the Lord has forgiven us. Hard words, right? Colossians chapter 3 is where that comes from. It means that if you see a brother or a sister stuck in sin, you should help carry that person, carry their burdens, and seek to restore them gently to the truth. Galatians chapter 6. So working out salvation has a lot of practical realities to it. Paul's not, you know, raising this to some lofty thing. He's saying there's practical ways in which you can make salvation effectual in your life by your action. I shouldn't have said the word effectual there because we're going to go to the next phrase that really kind of addresses the effect a little bit more. Let, let's, let's jump to there. But before I do that, Paul is commanding the community. The word here, your, it's y'all, it's, it's, it's plural. Continue to work out your salvation. He's speaking to the community. And he's already given them some commands which are very specific to their context. For example, he says, stand firm in one spirit, striving together with one accord in chapter 1, verse 27. In chapter 2, he says, make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and in one mind, one purpose. And next week, what we're going to look at is the phrase that comes in uh, chapter 2, verse 14, where he says, love this, think about this this week, do everything without grumbling or arguing. Wow, that's applicable to us all, right? So that you would become blameless and pure children of God. Work for Paul is incredibly practical. Incredibly practical. And so while there's a community idea to the idea of working out our salvation, there's also a personal responsibility. There's an obligation because, um, just like this morning, so, you know, Friday I knew I was going to play piano. If I had put my fingers to the test somewhat and got me comfortable with music, if Brian had worked on his part, if Josiah had learned his notes, if Ken had learned how to play in time at the right time, if Karen had learned when to change chords and what the chords are, the contribution would have been bad, to say the least. And it would have brought down the whole group. There's a personal responsibility we each have in, in working out our own issues and then helping each other work out issues together. Make sense? So while it's a corporate command, it also has personal ramifications to it. And when we do this, we do it with the attitude of fear and trembling. And, and it's a great uh, reminder of, of that the only appropriate attitude to have in the presence of God is one of respect. The idea behind the word fear here is not I'm afraid, it's I'm in awe. I'm trembling because I know before whom I am standing today. Consider this. And now, O Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you but to fear 
the Lord your God, to walk in His ways, to love Him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. That's biblical fear of the Lord. So let's jump to the next phrase. Do you have to do that one? That's the next phrase. Um, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. Let's take a look at this, because you can't have the first phrase without the second, and you can't have the second without the first. Paul puts them together very intentionally. The word work for, that's used in the Greek here is a different word for work than the one that we just kind of went through. When it says work out your own salvation, produce, be useful, mind to you, all that kind of stuff. This word for here is this word for work here is a different word. I want to look at that word briefly with you. It's the word energo. Can you say that? An ergo. Yeah, it's a it's a sigma in the middle there. I'm sorry for that. It's an ergo is is the word. Say that one more time. An ergo. Very good. Greek is coming along, and it means to bring something about through use of capability, work, produce, effect. The effect is the really, really important word there. And there's two significant things about this word. Number one, it's overwhelm, overwhelmingly used of the action of God. And we'll see some examples of that in just a minute. It's overwhelmingly used as the action of God. And number two, it's always used as effective action. It's effective action. It's action that actually comes to fruition. So let's look at a couple of examples where the word energon is used. For example, Ephesians chapter 3. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at energon within us, at work within us. Colossians chapter 1. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil. Interesting, Paul says, for this I toil. There's intentionality, there is work that Paul is doing. He's not inactive. He says, for this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully anergoned within me, that he powerfully works in me. Effective work. Work that comes to fruition. Last example. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 says this. It says, and we also thank God constantly for this. That when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but what it really is, the Word of God, which is at work, which is effectual in you believers. Alright? So on the one hand, we have work that God calls people to. Paul says, work out your salvation. Produce, cause to, to cause to function, work. Alright? The imperative there. And yet Paul says, for it is God who brings that work to effect in you. You cannot have one without the other. And you, you notice that even in those passages. Paul puts himself to it, and yet he trusts God for the work that God wants to do. 
This work is characterized by God giving the will, which is purpose and resolve, and the action or the work in the believer's life. And so there's a couple of ways that this passage has been and can be misunderstood. One way it can be misunderstood or misapplied is, is coming to it by saying, I have to work like a beaver. I just have to go, 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 go to attain the favor of God. Some people believe that their holiness depends upon the works that they do because whether they believe it in their mind or not, they act as though God is not able and not willing to grant them what they need, the power, the salvation in their life. They, sometimes we think this, we say, I just got to get better. Man, I just, I just got to do better. Well, it's a, it's a yes and no. I have to put, I have to put my, my action in the process. But if I just say, I have to do this, I have to do, I have to do, without saying, God has to, I lack the power to bring to effect what God wants in my life. All right? That's one way someone can misunderstand this uh, passage. Another way this passage could be misunderstood is that um, we think that everything is holy a work of God. Now, everything is holy work of God, but God also wants people to be involved in that work. And so it would be like thinking, well, God's going to, um, God's going to imprint Matthew 5, 6, and 7 just upon my mind as long as I you know, listen to it while I sleep every night because I don't want to put any time into it. But God's going to just do that. No, you won't learn Matthew 5, 6, and 7. You've got to put some time into it. You, you've, got to, you've got to take moments from your day and say, God, help me to memorize. Help me to commit this word to my life. Not just so that I know it in my head, but so that I know it in my heart. Alright? So with misunderstanding one, thinking that it's all my work. I just have to be better. Some of us think and we live and we become frozen by fear. We become frozen by uh, feeling as though we are inadequate. Um, just giving up and saying, well, forget it. I, I guess if you know, this is all it's going to be, I'm, I'm done. I don't know what your past is. I've experienced that before. I've experienced those roadblocks before. But I want you to think about a question. What is an area in your life that you are living as though God does not have the power to work in you? Think about that again for a moment. What is an area of your life in which you are living right now and you believe that God does not have power to work in you? Now, God is going to work according to His Word. So, knowing the Word is incredibly important there. But oftentimes, we live with our spouses, and there's tension, and there's friction, and we think that God can't at all work there. Or we're raising our kids, and it's a struggle, and we think, well, there's no way God can do this, I just have to be better, you know? Maybe obeying our parents, like, man, I just, I, 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 I yell at my dad again. I can't trust God for that. I can't give that to God. 
I can't ask God for power. I can't ask God for strength. Maybe it's being kind to that neighbor. Maybe it is struggling with anger or, or lust or addiction or, or insert yourself wherever you're at. What's an area where you sometimes think and believe that God cannot work in you? Maybe it's forgiveness. What's an area where you think God cannot work in you? All right? There is no area that God cannot work in and through you. But we confront that just head on. There is no area in your life that you submitting yourself to God and you serving one another in humility, there's no area where God cannot work in you. Some of us, thinking of number two, uh, you know, in the ways that this passage can be misunderstood, thinking that this is holy work of God, like I said before, we can become disillusioned and God, why aren't you doing that? And it's almost like God moves without our involvement. Paul says, for this I toil, striving, struggling with all energy that he powerfully works in me. The two have to come and they have to be. I spent a lot of time this week thinking about an example that wasn't from possible, possible like uh, boundaries like well there and then you use the example. Uh, I found I thought of one and it has to do with farming. How many farmers in the room? Gardeners? Any gardeners in the room? Yes, a couple gardeners. All right, uh, you'll see evidence of my gardening in just a moment here. Um, <laughs> yeah, wait for it. Uh, my grandparents used to have a sign in their garden, and it said this. It said, he who tills a garden, or he who grows a garden, I can't remember which one, works hand in hand with God. And I thought that's a very appropriate idea behind of working and allowing God to work through us. Because farming is something that we have to have, or gardening is something that we have to have intentionality in, and yet it is something that is ultimately um, dependent upon God for a lot of things. Um, I, I am not much of a gardener. Each year we, we plant a small garden and after a short season of effort, we, we, get the, we get the seeds in the ground, usually on time, and we remember to water for a couple days or weeks, uh, and then we forget maybe for a couple days or weeks, often during the hot season, <laughs> which leads to an interesting garden. I want to show you a picture of a garden in uh, Greece. This is a beautiful cultivated land. You can see how the trees are like in straight lines. You can see how things are spaced out. You can even see like there's not, at least from this vantage point, doesn't look like a lot of weeds. There's intentionality that went into this. This did not just happen. All right, there was work that went into this. And yet, because this is um, out in God's creation, um, those trees are dependent upon God for rain. They're dependent upon God for sun. They're dependent upon God for the right temperatures at the right times in order to bear fruit. Now, I want to show you a picture of my garden. Good team. There it is. <laughs> That's a square foot garden, by the way. And, um, and, and <laughs> I'd love to know sometimes how many tomato plants you think we have there. <laughs> Because you can't even see definition. Um, they started small and then they kept growing and then they kept growing and we went away and they kept growing. And, uh, you can tell that we're not all that diligent about weeding and there's great cherry tomatoes on there. 
and there's some great, there's some great really big tomatoes that you can't see because they're like on the ground uh, because we did state. The first one is an example of someone who puts their intentionality behind something that they want to see good quality fruit built in. The second one, now there's still fruit there, but we lost a lot of tomatoes because we didn't stake them properly. And, you know, we, we probably didn't get quite the yield because all of our lines are all together. The herbs are great. They're over on the side, if you can kind of see them. I was watching PBS uh, a couple weeks ago, and it was talking about how to produce the best tomatoes, and how <laughs> I watch weird things like this from time to time. And they're talking about how, you know, watering at the same time of day, and watering at the right amount, making sure your pH is balanced, and I'm quickly getting out of my element right now in terms of talking about gardening. But it showed great intention to produce great results. When God wants to work in us, God wants us to depend upon Him, but God also wants us to do the work necessary to put ourselves in a position to trust Him and rest in Him. There's a balance. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. But don't forget, it's God who works in you to willing to act in order to fulfill His good purpose. Could I tell you something? God wants to work in you. Each person here, God wants to work in you. So I want to encourage you and ask you to consider how could you work with God in a more productive fashion for the kingdom? How could you apply the salvation that comes through God to your life in a fuller way? I don't know what that looks like for you. I, I know that it comes down, at least in part, to being in the Word, hearing the Word of God, and obeying. But I don't know what that looks like in your situation right now. Alistair Bay also says this. He says, The grace of God does not relieve my responsibility to be obedient. He says, The grace of God makes possible my obedience. What kind of garden do you want to cultivate today? <laughs> By the grace of God. I want to give you a moment to consider that. And to ask God, God, where do you want to start with me? What's the area, God, in my life that you want me to walk forward in and you want me to work at? In a, in a good biblical sense of work. Not, not striving to achieve God's grace. You can't achieve it. There's nothing you can do to, to earn it. But where can you set your heart and mind towards what is right, what is true, what is commanded of you? and rely upon God's power. Can we pray together? God, you call us to difficult things. You call us to um, 
calls to good things. And even when we experience trial and, uh, and sadness and disappointment in our life, God, in your grace, you make possible our obedience. God, we want to work out our salvation. We want to appropriate our salvation with fear and trembling, knowing before we knowing that we stand before the God of the universe. And that God, you, God, work in us and you bring that work to effect for your purpose and for your glory. God, this is not about us at all. And so God, we're reminded even of the act of Christ, who being in very nature God did not consider equality of God something to his own advantage, but he made himself nothing, took very nature of his servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself and he became obedient to death, even death on the cross. God, we want our lives to be characterized by the obedience that we have seen in Christ's life. Each of us, God, has a slightly different application for how this applies to our lives, to our work, to family, to friends, to this church. But God, we trust you for the grace which so powerfully works God is able. He will never fail. He is almighty God. Greater than all we seek. Greater than all we ask. He has done great things. And as we finish, I want to just have us lift that up together. Be reminded that God is sufficient for us today. Amen? There we go.